Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Good News Gathering. My name is Annie Rankin, and I serve in the ushering ministry here at G&G. Uh, with me are Jeff, our teaching pastor, and J.D., our operations administrator. We're in the second week of our lesson series entitled Q&A. Last month, we encouraged our church family to send in any questions that they might have about the Bible, our beliefs, and how we apply what we believe to our daily lives. We received a number of thought-provoking questions, and Jeff, one of those questions you handled last week involved how you have those difficult boundary-setting conversations with your parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, the question that we covered last week was specifically directed at adult children and how adult children can set healthy boundaries with their parents. But the truth, the truth is there are boundary issues in every relationship, whether it's in the family or it's among friends or it's at work or it's at church. There are boundary issues. And so I reference to what I think are very helpful resources for you all. First is the book Boundaries by a Christian psychologist Henry Cloud, and I, and I strongly recommend uh, that book for you. And second is Prep 3, which is coming up on Saturday, October the 12th. And Prep 3, you can read more about it on your insert, which is, um, which is in your bulletin. And um, it's, it's designed to really help you successfully navigate those tough conversations that you need to have, but you really don't enjoy having. And we all have to have those conversations. And some of you have asked, well, do I have to take prep one and two before I take prep three? And the answer is no, you don't have to take them in order. And you can pick up prep one and two. You can pick those up next year because we cycle through them each year. The $10 actually covers your breakfast, your lunch, and the cost of your materials for that day. And you can sign up for prep three at the table in the atrium or you can check the box on your, commun- on your Connect card. Our focus verse for this Q&A series is 2 Timothy 2.15, and let's all recite it together. Here we go. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. This church believes that the Bible is the word of truth, not a word of truth, not one truth among many competing truths, not truth for me, but not for you, but the truth. So let's get to those questions and let's see what the Bible has to say. All right, question number one. Were dinosaurs on the earth before Adam and Eve? Okay, great question, and the short answer is yes. Um, On this much, evolutionary scientists and the Bible would agree. The Genesis account of creation tracks God's creative process through six six days. And when it gets to the sixth and final day of creation, it says this, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, which would include dinosaurs. This is a reference on the sixth day to land animals. Aquatic animals and airborne animals were um, created on the fifth day. It goes on to say, and God created them each according to its kind, and it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. In other words, when God finished creating the animal kingdom, it's almost like there was a pause. And he saw that it was good. And then it says, then, circle that word. Then, God said, then, after seeing that the animal kingdom was good, God said, let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, this idea of rule over or dominion is not to abuse or misuse the animal kingdom But man is the pinnacle or the apex of creation. And the Bible goes on to say, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning (laughs) the sixth day. So according to the Bible, dinosaurs would have been created before Adam and Eve earlier on the sixth day. But earlier does not mean millions of and millions of years earlier. Now some of you are probably thinking, but Jeff, everybody knows dinosaurs evolved over millions of years and went extinct probably 65 million years ago. Man didn't arrive on the scene until much later. What I have to say to you is be very careful with that thought process. What most Christians do not realize is that the belief that the earth is millions and millions of years old, brings into question the character of God. Think about it. If you go back and read Genesis 1 account of creation, at the end of each day of creation, God declares that the creation is good. And then when his creative work is finished, at the end of day 6, he sees it and describes it as very good, perfect. Then in Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For, and encircle these five words, When you eat from it. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In other words, until then, until you disobey, no death. The Bible clearly ties death to sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the wages or the price tag, the result of sin is death. The Bible goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, death entered the created order through the sin of the first human beings. Prior to that sin, creation was perfect. Now think about it. Scientists have found cancer and other diseases in the bones of dinosaurs that supposedly lived millions of years before Adam was created. In fact, many scientists believe that there were at least five major extinctions 
I mean, extinctions that killed, some estimate, between 65 and 90% of all living creatures at the time of these various extinctions. All these extinctions supposedly happened prior to the dawn of man. So if as a Christian and a believer in the Bible you accept millions of years of animal death before the creation and fall of man, what that means is death is not the wage of sin. Death is simply part of the created order, which means God is a cruel creator who uses disease and natural disasters and extinctions to wreak havoc on his own creation. So his creation really isn't good. His creation at the end of six days wasn't really very good. And if disease and suffering and death are just the way he designed the world, then he's not real good either. He's the author of death. Now, if you have questions about what the Bible has to say about creation and the science that supports the creation account in Genesis, here's a resource you might find helpful. It's a lesson series we did back in 2017. It's listed there on your outline. You can go to our website and you can listen. I think there were seven lessons in all where we really drilled down on these issues and why it's reasonable to believe in the creation account found in Genesis. Question two. How could God be an example to us who have never been married or are now single? Since God was never married, how could he experience loss and loneliness? So I think this is a really important question because it gets at what we believe about God. I think a lot of people view God as this divine, distant, disconnected deity that's far away and that isn't a part of our world and that doesn't know what it's like to be one of us. And really, this question almost kind of assumes that point of view, does it not? The assumption of this question seems to be, hey, God isn't here, and he hasn't been in the situations that I've been in, so how can he really help me deal with it? I I feel like that's kind of the assumption behind the question. But I want to challenge that assumption a little bit today, because I think the logic is a little faulty. All right, the first thing that we have to remember is this, guys. Direct experience isn't necessary for empathy and wise guidance. All right? For God to give us wise guidance and for God to express empathy for us over the situations that we deal with, he doesn't necessarily have to be in the exact same situation. Let me give you an, a kind of a concrete example that might help you. A few years ago, I was, I was in the middle of a group counseling session. I was leading a group counseling session for um, a bunch of people in various stages of drug and alcohol addiction. And one of the, one of the clients in the group um, said, just in the middle of, I, was, I think I was mid-sentence, interrupted me and said, J.D., have you ever used drugs? Right? So obviously the spotlight went off of whatever I was talking about, whatever I was trying to lead the group through, and all of a sudden now it's on me. All right? So I felt like it was important to be honest with them, so I said, no, I've never used drugs. And the guy looked at me and said, well, then how can you help me? And I'll never forget my response because it was a total, it was kind of one of those God things where I feel like it just kind of zap, here you go, right? Um, but but it, it worked out really well because I looked at him and said, listen, 
No, I have never used drugs. I've never been high, never drank a beer, never even smoked a cigarette. Okay? No, I have not done those things. But I said, I do know exactly what it's like to be caught up in a pattern of behavior I wish I could stop. I do know what it's like to keep doing things over and over that hurt me and other people. I do know what it's like to find myself in a situation that I seem to have no power to fix. Sound like familiar to you? (laughs) Right? I said, no, I'm not an addict and I never have been. But I know what it's like to feel some of the things that you are feeling. And the same is true of God. The reality is God doesn't have to be physically married to another individual in order to understand that process. God, even though he is a, he's an eternal union of three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, does in fact know what it feels like to be alone. Because remember what the Bible teaches us about the nature of God. I just said it a second ago. God is not just this one distant defined deity. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a doctrine that theologians refer to as the Trinity. Right? This idea that God has three persons and yet is one thing. God is God the Father. God is God the Son. God is God the Holy Spirit. And because God has existed in those three different persons, we can see from the pages of Scripture that he has, in fact, experienced almost all of those things that this individual is asking about. Let's take it one person at a time. All right, God the Father. If you look at the book of Genesis, Dad just mentioned it, God creates everything, creates humanity, puts them in this place of perfection, and then what do they do? They rebel against him. In Genesis chapter 12, God picks this guy named Abraham, and he promises to use Abraham's descendants, this group of people named the Jews or the Israelites, to bless the whole world. He gives them his law directly. They see his protective power and influence over their lives. They watch him guide them through the wilderness. They watch him bring them out of slavery. And the whole rest of the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus all the way to the book of Malachi, is the story of how the Israelites consistently and repeatedly rebelled and walked away from the God that had chosen them. And it's interesting that in the book of Jeremiah, God uses a very particular analogy about this group of people. He says to his prophet Jeremiah, have you seen what fickle Israel has done? Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshipped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. So God chose this group of people, promised to bless and protect them, and they refused him. And God uses the imagery of being cheated on to describe his experience of these people. So for any of you who have ever felt the sting of adultery in your relationship, God the Father has felt the same. Let's look at Jesus, who is God the Son. Hebrews chapter 2 said, for this very reason, he had to be made like them. So Jesus had to be made like people 
fully human in every way, in order that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see, Jesus was fully human, and he had to be, in order that he could feel what we feel and experience what we experience, so that he could be the middleman between us and God, sacrificing himself physically for us in, on the cross. But he also understands our lives. He has felt our emotions. He has experienced our ups and downs. He has known what it's like to be fully human. But the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, because he himself suffered. Circle that phrase. He himself suffered when he was tempted. Think about that for a second. Jesus suffered. It says very clearly he suffered temptation. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. You and I have all felt temptation. We've probably felt temptation today or sometime yesterday, like to do something we know we ought not do or to think things or to to want things that we ought not want. The reality is he's felt those same temptations. He just didn't sin. He didn't give in. But he also suffered in other ways. Think about it. He was betrayed by one of his closest followers. He was denied on the night that he died, or on the night before he died, he was denied three times by his one of his very best friends. Jesus know what it, knows what it means to suffer. And on the night before he died, specifically for this question, as it was asked, he knew exactly what it was like to feel all alone. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray because he was, he was in deep anguish over what was about to happen the next day because he knew he was going to die. And he asked his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, guys, will you just stay up with me and pray with me because I am freaking out right now, right? And they couldn't do it. All of them fell asleep. And Jesus was left completely alone. Listen to the anguish in his voice. He returns to the disciples and finds them sleeping. Listen to this. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Like, I need you guys for one hour and you can't stay awake? He felt completely alone. So if you and I ever experience a deep sense of loneliness, God the Son has felt the same thing. Finally, the Bible tells us that God's Spirit comes to live inside of us at our conversion, and yet we can bring sorrow upon the Holy Spirit when we sin and rebel against Him. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. So to sum up, think about this. The pages of Scripture have proven to us that God has experienced betrayal, God has experienced loneliness, and God can have sorrow brought into the heart of his spirit by the way that we live when we choose to live in rebellion against him. So, so we, we, we ought to be very careful when we, when we, I think, wrongly assume that just because God is in an exactly the, the same situation I'm in right at this moment doesn't mean he hasn't experienced it and doesn't understand it. Question. How do we keep our childlike faith and trust while also being wise and mature adults? Where is the line between being realistic and believing that God can and will do immeasurably more? 
Okay, so this is a really cool question, um, and, and it, it really it contrasts what seem to be opposites, right? Faith, wisdom. Trust, realism. Childlikeness, maturity. Now, the idea of childlike faith, which is referenced in this question, is an idea that's drawn from a couple of particular passages that happened during Jesus' ministry. So let's take a look at one of them from Matthew chapter 18. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I want to stop you right there. Notice what's going on, because everything else that comes out of this passage flows right from this first verse. They were coming to Jesus to ask him which one was going to be the most important once he became king. You cannot miss this. They are jockeying for position and wanting to figure out what the hierarchy is. Okay, Jesus, there's 12 of us. Which one's the most important after you, buddy? Help us out. We want to know the pecking order. Right? You have to understand, this is the key to this whole passage. So Jesus calls this little kid in among them. Now, I don't know where they got the little kid. All right? <laughs> That's a question I just think is really funny. Like, where's the kid? Like, but there's a kid running around somewhere because Jesus calls the kid in. And I imagine that it's like a, a kid, maybe my son's age, like four or five years old. And he just kind of plops him on his lap there. Right? And you got these 12 guys standing around, and Jesus with a little kid on his lap, and he goes... Fellas, let me tell you something. Unless you change, change what? Change what? Change your attitude. Change your focus on what's most important. Change your desire to be the most powerful, the most important, the most prestigious. Unless you change that heart that's inside you that wants to jockey for position and be more important than everybody else. Unless you change that and become like this little child. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about what, what's that little kid doing there? If he's, if he's anything like my kid, he's, he's probably trying to get down and run around, right, to be quite honest with you. But he's probably just kind of happy to be there, no? Like, hey, somebody's paying attention to me for a second. That's kind of cool, right? That's what kids do. He says, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus tells us what he means. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position, circle that phrase, takes the lowly position of this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't try to be the most important. Stop worrying about that. Don't focus on what you can get Don't focus on what you can achieve. Don't focus on what you can attain. Instead, be like this little child, just happy to be here and just grateful to be in my presence. Not worried about power and position. So let's let's kind of summarize for a moment. For Jesus, what, what childlike faith, if you want to put it in those terms, looks like is humility and dependence upon God. Humility and dependence upon God. Humility is a willingness to be low, right? To not be the most important, to not be known as somebody. And our American culture really glorifies power and importance and wealth, right? 
If you've ended up on TV, if somebody's going to listen to you, if you've got enough podcast followers, now you're important. Right? That's how we stack things up in America. But for Jesus and in his kingdom, the greatest are the humble, those who aren't in it for themselves. Dependence. Let's think about that word for a moment. Dependence is recognizing that all we have and all we need comes from God and is not of ourselves. Again, if you look at our culture, it glorifies the independent. It glorifies the people who yank themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? That's what we glorify here in America. And yet in the kingdom of God, it's those who recognize their utter dependence upon God for everything that are considered strong. And kids, really, when you think about it, are a great example of humility and dependence. Number one, think about humility. They're much less self-conscious than you and I. That's why they can dance and have fun in public, and they don't, they don't know that you're making fun of them, and they don't care, right? They're, 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 they, don't, they don't focus on themselves. They worry much less about their reputation and their position, and kids inherently know that they depend upon their parents for pretty much everything. Take my, like, a, like a two-year-old, like my daughter, right? She's not going to go run and get in the fridge and cook herself a meal. She's just going to scream at me until I do something about the fact that she's hungry, right? She knows she's dependent. She doesn't expect to be independent. And Jesus is saying to us, guys, Humility and dependence are wisdom. If you look at your life and think in those terms, humility and dependence are, in fact, wisdom. There's, there's, no, there's no biblical contrast between wisdom and childlikeness. There's no opposition between dependence and maturity because from a biblical standpoint, we are all called to be humble and dependent upon God. In fact, biblically speaking, being dependent and being humble is being mature, right? And, and it's only into such hearts, childlike, humble, dependent hearts, that God chooses to do immeasurably more. So I want to take you now to the immeasurably more passage, right? Because this only shows up once in Scripture in this particular way. And it's in Ephesians chapter 3. But I'm going to take you a couple verses back to give you some context. And I want you to just notice how many times humility and dependence show up in this passage before immeasurably more appears. For this reason, Paul says in Ephesians, I kneel. Circle that phrase, I kneel. That's a sign of humility. It's recognizing that there's somebody more important than me. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, humility, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So derives is a state of dependence. Because if you derive something from somebody else, then you're dependent on them for it. I pray that out of his glorious riches, meaning God's, not ours, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Whose power is it? God's power, not our power. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power. Whose power? God's power, not your power. You may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled, circle this phrase, filled to the, uh, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
Circle that. Filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I love that phrase. It, 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 it makes it very clear to us. If we want to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God, if we want to be like God, then we have to depend on his power and his spirit. It will not come from us. It's then that we get to this final sentence. Now, to him who is able to do, circle this phrase, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I want you to notice this from this passage. Immeasurably more happens by God's power. It only happens by God's power. So immeasurably more doesn't come from you and me. Immeasurably more happens because God's power is operating in us for God's glory. The point is not that you get to live the immeasurably more life. The point is not that you get to experience immeasurably more. The point is that God does immeasurably more in you by his power for his glory through our humility and dependence. Okay, it's through us being in a posture of humility and dependence, recognizing our utter dependence upon him and recognizing his greatness as opposed to our weakness. All right, it's in that environment that God can use his power for his glory within us. So if you want God to do immeasurably more with your life, all right, I think there's a couple things that, that you need to do. Number one, bow the knee every day. Get humble before God and recognize that you don't necessarily have the plan for your life. <laughs> and, and whatever plan you try to initiate is going to need his help, right? You and I are, ought to be in a place of humility before God because let's be honest, he got us to where we are <laughs> and he will get us to where we're going, Right? recognizing our need for his power. But I would also, I want to say one other thing, and, and, and I was reminded of this because of a conversation I had with my dad about 15 years ago. All right? I, was, I was kind of in that immediate post-college, what the heck am I going to do with my life? And, and, I, and I, I remember talking to him about all these really important Christian people that had gone out there and done amazing things, and I'm like, I want to be one of those people, and I don't know how, and I'll never forget it. We had this conversation in his bedroom. I remember exactly where I was when it because he said, he said, J.D., all the great ones got to be great because they put down roots someplace and they just started doing what God asked them to do. Right? Put down some roots. Do what God's asking you to today. Be humble enough and dependent enough to just let him do what he wants to do with you today. And if you get real humble and you get real dependent, the reality is he's probably going to drive you to immeasurably more. But immeasurably more is only going to happen when we put ourselves in a place to just let God use us as we are and where we are. And over time and with our willingness, God can take us to immeasurably more. How do we distinguish between the voice of God speaking to us and our own mind, our own desires speaking to us? Okay. 
When we accept Christ as our Savior and we're forgiven of our sins, the Holy Spirit begins to live in us, and, and it begins a process that the Bible calls sanctification. Now, on the night before he died, Jesus prayed for his followers, and he asked God to sanctify them by the truth. He said, your word is truth. Now, that word sanctify is just a fancy biblical word for the process of purifying our hearts and minds and molding us into the likeness of Christ. But notice what Jesus linked that process to, okay? It was not a miraculous event. It was not a one-time thing where all of a sudden we're transformed and, and, and it's, it happens in one fell swoop. It wasn't even some highly emotional mountaintop experience. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. By the truth. So what is truth? Well, Jesus goes on to say, your word, in other words, God's word, is truth. Now, the Apostle Paul followed Jesus' line of thinking when he wrote this. He said, all Scripture is inspired by God. Some some of your translations may say, is God-breathed. In other words, the Scripture is the very breath or the expression of God. It's His Word. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. So it teaches us what's true. It also points out where we're at fault, where we're off the right track. It says it straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. So it it helps us clarify right and wrong, to be able to distinguish those things. It is God's way of preparing us in every way. Circle that phrase. It's God's way of preparing us in every way. In other words, there is nothing we need that it does not prepare us for. It's God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped. In other words, completely prepared for whatever God is calling us to do. How cool is that? So if you're trying to discern God's voice, understand that God's voice never contradicts God's word. Whatever voice you're hearing in your head, or if you're feeling a prompting, or a tap on the shoulder, or however you want to describe it, you've got this impression, and you think, man, is this from God? Believe me, God's voice never contradicts God's word, so it's imperative that we know His word. Because here's the deal, folks. When you know His word, you'll recognize His voice. Second thing is this, pray. Pray. Jesus' half-brother James wrote this. He said, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, ask God to help you discern. 
Ask him in prayer, if is this really your will or is this my will? Is this your word to me or is this just me talking to myself? Is this your desire for my life or is it my desire? So are your prayers really thy will be done or my will be done? And if the voice that you're hearing in your head is self-centered, it's the wrong voice. And if the voice you're hearing leads to fights and quarrels and anger and coveting, you better check it. My will be done invariably leads to relational friction. Always does. Thy will be done tends to lead to peace, not chaos. And the third thing is this. Consult wise Christians. Consult wise Christians. The Bible says the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. So if you want to know if it's God's voice that you're hearing, do those things. Know his word, pray, and consult wise Christians. How do you give forgiveness? The question of forgiving people is one of those subjects that's tackled in the Bible all over the place. Um, so to give us some, some, uh, some clarity here, I'm just going to kind of focus in on Jesus' teaching as it pertains to forgiveness. Because he gives us some very clear instruction, and especially as it pertains to two categories of people. And, and so I want to address, I want to address the, um, the subject of how we, how we give forgiveness to people, um, similar, similarly to the way Jesus taught it, which was how we do that with people who ask for forgiveness and how we show forgiveness to people who don't ask for forgiveness. Because those are two very discrete sets of people. People that come back to you and say, yeah, man, screwed up, sorry about that, I want to change, and people who don't. Okay, so, so let's address those two different groups. So how do we forgive those who repent is the Christian word for apologizing and turning from whatever it is that I did. All right, so if, if Jesus speaks to this in Luke chapter 17, and he says this, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Okay, so, so Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke them, all right? That's kind of a fancy Christian term for call the sin out honestly. All right, let me be real clear. When someone sins against you, Jesus' first step is to tell them that they sinned against you. Almost none of us want to do this. All right, the reality is people sin against us or they hurt us or they do something that is really painful to us and almost all of us immediately want to shut them out and go silent. And that is, the, that is absolutely not what Jesus said to do. He said in no uncertain terms, when somebody sins against you, tell them that they sinned. Why? Because if you've ever had actually somebody do that to you... <laughs> I'm betting it left an impression because I've had people do this to me, right? Number one, I'm married, so I've had this experience a few times, right? right? But I've, I've, I've also had people in my life that love me enough to tell me that I'm messing up or that I've done something wrong. And I'll tell you right now, that is a, 
That is a very powerful experience. And so what Jesus says is when somebody sins against you, tell them the truth. Let them know exactly what they did and the impact that it had on you. Right? Being honest about the impact of sin and dealing directly with the individual who hurt you is a critical first step in the pro- process of forgiveness. All right? If you're not willing to do that, you're probably not willing to forgive that person. If you can't look them in the eye and tell them the truth about the fact that they hurt you, then you're probably not willing to forgive. And that's an issue. All right? Second, second thing this, is this, though. Jesus goes on. He says, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, I'm sorry, then Jesus says you must forgive them. Right? Once you've been honest about the negative impact of that person's sin and they repent of that sin, apologize and indicate their desire not to do it again, then it's a requirement of Jesus' followers to display an unlimited willingness in our hearts to forgive those who repent, regardless of how many times it happens. Right? An unlimited willingness to forgive those who repent, those who... Indicate their sorrow for the sin and make, make direct steps to, to change it, okay? Now, let me give you an example, all right? And I brought up marriage earlier. The reality is if you're married or you have deep friendships with somebody, <laughs> let's be honest, guys. There's something about that person that they do on a regular basis that probably bothers you, hurts you, or maybe in some ways sins against you, Right? They mess up somehow repeatedly, all right? In a marriage, we are called to have an unlimited well of forgiveness. But the reality is we are also called to that unlimited well of forgiveness for other followers of Christ. We're called to that. And the reason for that is very simple. Because Jesus has had an awful, big, deep, and long well of forgiveness for every single one of us. So Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Because if any of us are honest, there's probably some confession of sin we could do on just about every day. And you're asking Jesus to do the same thing for you that he's asking for you and I to do to somebody else when they sin and mess up and repent and apologize. All right, so we are called to have that unlimited willingness to forgive those who repent. But what about forgiving those people who don't repent? Forgiving those people who don't ever acknowledge that what they did hurt me? Forgiving those people who we don't even have an opportunity to perhaps do that with? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, gives us some very clear instruction for how Jesus calls us to deal with those who don't repent. All right? If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. This is the exact same instruction that he gave us in Luke chapter 17. If somebody sins, go to them, tell them the truth just between the two of you. If they repent, it's all good. Forgive them and move on. But if they will not listen, 
take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, there's probably other people that have been impacted by that person's sin, right? And maybe you and one other person goes along to go, hey, no, you really need to acknowledge and deal with this because what you did hurt multiple people. And here we are loving you and caring about you, trying to get you to understand that you have made a mistake. Please apologize and repent for that. Right? If the person will refuse to listen to that, take your case to the church. Then if they won't accept the church's decision, underline this phrase, treat them as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Now remember, this is the teaching of Jesus. Right? So step one in the process is similar to the Luke passage. Go to them, deal with it direct. If they won't, maybe you and somebody else go to them to try to correct the issue. If that won't work, you know, take it up to the church. If that won't work, then... Guys, the reality is if the sin has been correctly rebuked and the person has not repented, then avoidance is reasonable. If, if the sin has been correctly rebuked, if you have followed the steps that Jesus commanded you to follow, and you have been honest with this person about the impact of their sin, and they deny it, or they will not repent, or they, they refuse to acknowledge what they have done, then avoidance is reasonable. There are situations where it's not only healthy, but necessary that you not spend time with people who willfully sin against you and are unwilling to acknowledge it. You do not have to put yourself in a position to be sinned against over and over and over by people who will not call it what it is. Right? You may choose at that point to simply avoid them. However, avoidance should not be your only tactic. Right? There's a second tactic that I think is critical, and that's that we should pray for that person's reconciliation with God. Right? Because if they're sinning, then there is, there's, there's an issue in their relationship with God. And if they're not willing to repent of it, then we need to pray that they will be reconciled to God. We see this graphically depicted as Jesus is hanging on the cross while some unrepentant soldiers and religious leaders crowded around him and made fun of him. He prayed very publicly, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Guys, the, the truth is, even though we may have had to make the decision to avoid that individual for a time while they are unwilling to repent, it doesn't mean that we should stop praying for them. I've had people in my life that I've had to avoid because they sinned against me and they were unwilling to acknowledge it. There, there, there are times where I've actually had to do this with people. Um, and one thing that I felt very clearly that God was calling me to do was to pray that they would eventually come to repentance. So, so my prayers, if you're anything like me, I'm one of those people that when somebody has hurt me and I've dealt with it and they, they, they won't, you know, if, if we have to get all the way to the avoidance step, the unfortunate reality is they've probably done something pretty hurtful to me. And I'm one of those people that when I'm mad at somebody, I, like, like, my process is I kind of like deal with that by myself and, and I'll take a walk or something and I will literally out loud say about that individual just about everything that I wish I could say to them. <laughs> it's kind of me, like I kind of practice like all the mean, angry things I want to say, right? 
But then in that process, I, I, I find myself getting to a spot where I, I have to say, okay, God, please forgive them for what they did. Please forgive them for what they did. They haven't acknowledged it. They're not dealing with it. They're not repenting of it. But please forgive them. And please help them to come to a knowledge of the fact that they were wrong. And please help them to understand the negative impact that it's had. And please help them maybe someday to come to the place where they can deal with the fact that they have done this. I've had to pray those prayers. Right? But in our prayers, we need to be specific and intentional for for God to help us forgive whether or not they ever come back for it. Whether or not they ever come. Like, we have to offload that anger. We have to offload that frustration. We have to offload those, those negative thoughts. All right? It doesn't mean that we have to trust those people if we bump into them. It doesn't mean that we have to engage with them in deep conversation. But it does mean that we can be prepared to verbalize the forgiveness we've already offered them in our prayers if they ever actually do come back to us, to repent to us personally. Now, Jeff, the last two questions we received are really geared more toward G&G's ministry philosophy or the way we do church. Every church has a ministry philosophy, correct? That's correct. And in addition to a statement of faith, which explains what a church believes, Every church kind of has its own particular way of fulfilling the purpose that Christ has set before it. The purpose Christ has given this church is found in our purpose statement, which explains why we exist as a church. And it goes like this. We exist to develop seekers into fully functioning followers of Christ. Now, if you notice in that purpose statement, the emphasis is on seekers, people who are seeking spiritual truth but haven't yet placed their faith in Christ. We like to think of G&G as a church for people who wouldn't be caught dead in church. And so we assume that there will be seekers at every service, every function, every life group meeting. In fact, our annual church-wide survey, which we do every January, indicates that at least 11% of the people who attend here are not followers of Jesus Christ. They're just here trying to check things out and figure things out for themselves. And our job is to create a safe place for them to explore the claims of Christianity and create an environment at the same time that will help them and all of us to develop into fully functioning followers of Christ. And we provide a number of ways for people to learn why we do church the way we do and to help them grow, right? uh, That's very true. In fact, one of them is happening today immediately after this service. We're having what we call Picnic on the Patio. It's a picnic for everyone who's been attending G&G for six months or less. And you get to meet members of the leadership team, members of the staff, And you also get to hear, in addition to great food, you'll get to hear a brief presentation about G&G and we'll have you on your way by 1.30. So please, if you're new to us, hang around for that. And then in two weeks, on Sunday, September 29th, we'll be presenting Class 101. And hear me on this. No matter how long you attend this church, you will never really get it. You won't understand until you take Class 101. It helps you get who we are what we believe, and why we do church the way we do. And it begins with lunch in the cafe, ends around 4 p.m. You can sign up on your Connect card. Just check the box uh, for that. And then also, to help all of us develop 
into fully functioning followers of Christ. We're starting next Sunday a new six-week life group study based on the book Radical. And that book, um, we're making it available to everybody. You only have to pay $5 if you buy it through us. If you go online, you'll probably pay 10 to 12 um, But we'll have those available, and you just have to stop out at the atrium, at the table in the atrium, and, and sign up out there. And um, it's, it, it's going to be a fun series, and it'll be supported by our Sunday morning lessons. Okay, now to those last two questions. First, speaking in tongues is a gift. But you see it in some churches, but not in others. Why? Okay, great question. The reason you see it in some churches, but not in others, is because there's been so much controversy about that particular gift in the history of Christianity. We cover this more in detail in class 301, but, and that's coming up on October 27th. But kind of let me give you the big picture about this particular gift. First... Good Christian people have disagreed about exactly what it is. Some people believe that the gift of tongues is the ability to speak in a foreign language without any prior training. It'd be kind of like me getting on the airplane to go on our Haiti mission trip, and when I get off the plane in Port-au-Prince, all of a sudden I could speak Creole without any training. Now you actually find an example of this in Acts chapter 2, which is there on your outline. And what you have in this particular situation, you have Christ's followers, the apostles, a bunch of untrained guys from Galilee who were miraculously able on that day to speak, scholars believe, somewhere between 12 and 15 different languages. Now remember, this happened at at a day called Pentecost, which was a Jewish religious festival that attracted thousands of pilgrims from all across the Roman Empire. So tons of different nationalities and different languages were there in Jerusalem at that time. Now that, for some Christians, is the gift of tongues. There are other Christians who believe, based on passages like 1 Corinthians 14.2 that's on your outline, that the gift of tongues includes an ability to pray in a language known only to God or to a person who has what they call the gift of interpretation. So there's, there's, there's disagreement among good Christian people about exactly what that gift is. Second, there's disagreement among good Christian people about whether the gift continues to this day. Some believe it does, like certain other spiritual gifts like teaching or hospitality or mercy or other gifts. But others believe that it actually ceased to operate after the apostles died. And they cite a passage like 1 Corinthians 13.8. So here's what you need to understand. Good Christian people disagree about what it is and whether it's still operational. That's why you see it in some churches and you don't see it in others. And where you come down on which side of those arguments, as far as we're concerned, that's between you and God. But here's why you don't see it here. Okay? Here's why we don't engage in this in our worship gatherings, our public functions, or our life groups. Okay? You've got to remember our purpose. Our purpose is to develop seekers into fully functioning followers of Christ. And what is the impact of that particular gift on seekers that come here to check out Christianity. Remember, we're not in Jerusalem with multiple nationalities and languages represented. 
We're in English-speaking rural southern Ohio. So what is the impact on seekers? The Apostle Paul tells us. He says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Okay, it's difficult for them to understand. I mean, think about it. It's hard enough to go to church for the first time without wondering if you're around a bunch of people who are somewhat out of their mind. Okay? Because why? It's frightening and it's confusing to the very people Christ has called us to reach, the very people we want to have here. And does a private prayer language help develop people into fully functioning followers of Christ? The Apostle Paul said this, but in church I would rather speak five intelligible words to, circle this word, instruct. To instruct. I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And friends, if it's unintelligible to everybody else, it does not instruct. And our purpose in our gatherings is to develop all of us into fully functioning followers of Christ. And our final question. Since nearly 30% of the Bible is prophecy, why doesn't G&G do a series on it? This is a great question, and it's one that's been asked fairly often. Um, And first, I think it's important to note that there are two different types of prophecy found in the Scripture. Okay? First is fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy that has already come true. And then second is yet to be fulfilled prophecy. This is prophecy that will come true at some point in the future. Now here at G&G, we actually touch on fulfilled prophecy almost every Christmas and every Easter. We examine passages at Christmas like Isaiah 7.14, which prophesied the virgin birth over 700 years before it actually happened. In Psalm 22, we look at this just this last Easter, which actually accurately depicted Christ's passion 1,000 years before that occurred. Specifically, it talks about Christ's last words and crucifixion, which was a form of execution that was not known in the Middle East at the time this prophecy was written. Okay? A thousand years before the crucifixion actually happened. So we do cover fulfilled prophecy. But when it comes to prophecy yet to be fulfilled, here at GNG we take a very cautious approach. We understand that over the last 2,000 years since Christ returned to heaven, good Christian people have disagreed about exactly how to interpret the prophecies found in books like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and especially the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. While all Christ followers agree that Christ is coming back, that is a prophecy that will occur at some point. The events surrounding exactly how that's going to happen have produced a number of interpretations. In fact, the leadership team has produced a white paper outlining the three most common interpretations of the book of Revelation. And if you'd like to see that, if you'd like to have a copy of that, all you have to do is write white paper on your connect card, and I'll make sure that you get one of those. The important thing is this. 
Don't get so caught up in any one interpretation or bogged down in details like who's, who's the Antichrist or who's the beast that it talks about in Revelation or what does 666 mean? Don't bog down in that to the point that you lose sight of the bottom line. Okay? And here it is. The bottom line for all as yet to be fulfilled prophecy is very simple. You can boil it down to two words. We, referring to Christians, we win. Okay? We win. When you boil it all down, we win. Regardless of what happens between now and then, regardless of whether it happens today or tomorrow or 10,000 years from now, you and I who are in Christ, we win. It's that simple. Okay? Now, let me close today by saying this. All right? This is what winning looks like. All right? It's found in Revelation 21. The Bible tells us what winning looks like, and it goes like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. You see, friends, there will come a day when for those who follow Jesus Christ, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. We win. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the hope that we have and the assurance that we have, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that one day, one day, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, or crying, or pain. In fact, we will experience your creation as it was before sin entered the world. Perfection. Father, we look forward to that day. And we're thankful for the hope that it gives us every day of life in a fallen world. Because we know deep down that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And one day we will be with you. 
Help us never to forget that, Father, for this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen.